Welcome to Champagne Problems. We're your hosts, Robbie Shaw and Charlotte Cameron. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we explore our mental health, well-being, performance, and longevity, and how our relationships with alcohol can influence each. No shame, no labeling, no judgment, just curiosity. Welcome back, loyal listeners. Today, Charlotte and I are here at Everybody Studios, and we'll be speaking with Celeste Yvonne. Celeste is a mom, a writer, a marketing professional, and one of the founders of Sober Mom Squad. Her work on parenting, the mental load of motherhood, mommy wine culture, and sobriety reaches mothers around the world and has been featured in the Washington Post, Huffington Post, Good Morning America, and the Today Show, among many others. Celeste is more than five years sober, and we're delighted to get to speak with her today. Let's go to Celeste. Celeste Yvonne, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have we you. Are. We've been been eyeing you for over a year. I've followed you for over a year. We've always known we wanted to get you on. And, you know, interestingly, I remember sending you the note on Instagram. And I, and I typically, when I ask people to come on, it's like this big, long, like pitchy kind of thing. And I think I sent one to you and was like, you ready to come on <laughs> or you want to come on or something like that? And it was just, it was, it was, a, it, we're it was a match. We're a good match here. Yeah. Well, I, I told you, I think for a second, I was like, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> yes that's right. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yes. Yeah. Loved it. Well, thank you so much. Um, we're very excited to speak with you. You are a incredible writer. I've read a lot of your articles just in knowing you were going to come on. I've, I'd read some before, but really dug in and knowing you were going to come on. You're such a good writer, very current, very relevant. Um, this is going to be a great conversation. So we like to start with rapid fire questions to get to know you, put you on the spot, get you a little nervous. Let's see the real. No, I'm just kidding. Here we go. Okay. What was your first live music concert and where? So I think that my first concert uh, was my mom took me to Amy Grant in the Bay Area but I was just a kid. The first concert that I actually wanted to go to mm-hmm. <laughs> myself mm-hmm. yeah. was Soundgarden at the Berkeley Amphitheater. Oh, yeah. Lovely. Lovely. I was a big, big Seattle grunge guy. Love Soundgarden. Oh, yes. All grunge. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. All right. Uh, fill in the blank. Taylor Swift is? Goat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. All right. We agree. We agree. <laughs> what food is your guilty pleasure? Oh, nachos. Oh my God. <laughs> Any, I, I'm a big runner and my biggest treat to myself after a, a long run is nachos. Well, that's also a kind of an opera ski munchable as well. That's true. Right. Yes. Um, Charlotte. Right. Um, if you could know the answer to any question, what would you ask? I would ask if there's an afterlife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would be very interested to know. And it would answer a few home debates <laughs> we're currently having. Oh, that's, right. that's good. So might, you could resolve that ongoing. That <laughs> change the course of life as we know it. Sure. Pretty much. Um, what is your favorite city or town in the U.S. aside from the one you live in? Uh, my heart will probably always be in Oakland, California. It's where I grew up. And um, I, you know, it, culturally, there's nothing like it. What What does that mean? I mean, I've been to Oakland, but I'm not, you know, well-versed in the culture there. What does that mean for you? It, it's so diverse. Um, you can see uh, a little bit of everything. The, the food options are endless. Uh, it was a really awesome place to grow up. It was an amazing place to get a taste for um, diversity and um, all facets of life. Wow. Sounds amazing. I not only listened to a lot of grunge growing up, but I listened to rap my whole life. And mm. Oaktown produces quite a few yeah. good rappers. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Berkeley too. Berkeley um, really built 
a lot like Green Day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they are Berkeley folks. I mean, we we produced uh, I say we like I was part of this you, process. Right. You and the team. You and the team. <laughs> I do that exactly. with I'm from Detroit with rap. Like we yeah. you know, we have done this. The D. Like, yes. <laughs> the honor of showing up to a concert every once in a while. Exactly. We put Eminem out That's there. That's right. We did that. <laughs> right. All right. Well, let's dive in. Uh Celeste. So we know a little bit of your story. We know that you've been sober for over five years. Um, you know, we kind of have to do this, but let's talk just a little bit about that journey. What were you doing prior to the decision to quit drinking and, you know, what led you there? Yeah. Um, so I grew up, as we talked about in the Bay Area, my father was an alcoholic and he was a high functioning alcoholic. He was um, just the the party boy, everyone loved him. Um, and he was really my hero. Um, I thought he was amazing. He was just the funny guy. He was the charming guy. And, uh, that all exploded and imploded when I was 15 as a freshman in high school, when he had a stroke, um, and he was 52 at the time. So, you know, fairly young and he, we thought he was going to die. He did not die, but um, he was permanently disabled for the rest of his life. And my, um, the way I looked at him changed forever. I mean, all of a sudden he went from my hero, just very athletic, charming person to um, can't even eat without assistance, can't talk, can't walk. So I went into my adulthood dealing with eating disorder issues this whole time, mind you, but um, never feeling like I had lost control over alcohol uh, because first and foremost, um, eating was kind of my my obsessive nature through college and through my early 20s. And when I finally started to work on um, solving my eating disorder issues, the transition to alcohol uh, did start to kind of slowly creep up on me. Uh, but when I became a mom, um, I thought my relationship with alcohol would change. I thought being a mother would um, dynamically change how I felt about alcohol, how I drank, because you can't drink the way I like to drink and be a mom. So I just thought it would, you know, be like a light switch uh, instinctively. And you know, I didn't drink during either of my pregnancies. I've, I have two children. So I kind of figured, look, I've, I, I've proven to myself that um, I, I do not have a drinking problem. But um, as I started drinking again after each uh, child was born, the way that it started with one glass of wine and just kept creeping up was alarming. I had all these fool's rules. Yeah won't drink till after five. I'll never drink alone. Um, I will always get to bed by 10. And um, it wasn't, it, it wasn't impacting my, my work. I was still exercising. I felt like I was doing all the things. So on paper, I looked like I was doing just fine. But secretly, I was getting very uncomfortable with my drinking. Speaking of secrets, I started hiding how much I was drinking to my husband um, because I knew it would look alarming if he saw that I was consuming a bottle of wine a night um, towards the end. So, you know, there was a lot of alarm bells ringing in my head, um, but it wasn't until, you know, I had a panic attack one morning close to Christmas uh, I was at work um, and it was after three days of parties and, you know, all the holiday parties. And I didn't even drink all that much over the holidays, but it was just one after the next, after the next, and then getting to work, having a panic attack and thinking, am I having a stroke? Is this, a, is this me at 38 having a stroke? And, you know, I went to the ER of course, the ER was like, no, you're not having a stroke. You're fine. But but that hour in the waiting room at the ER was really such a defining moment for me because I had to have that moment with myself where I said, if this isn't a stroke, 
how many more years will it take before it is? And how much more are you willing to drink and risk this life and the direction that you've seen it, it goes firsthand? Um, so I quit that day and I quit cold Turkey. I white knuckled it like crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I was not going to go to AA cause I wasn't an alcoholic, <laughs> but, um, I just hung on to it. Like my life depended on it because it really felt like it did. Going back to that phase before you kind of got into a rhythm with it and really started to feel some of those benefits. I mean, what were, how did you do that? That white knuckling phase for listeners who are kind of like in that moment, maybe they don't want to utilize, you know, AA or any of those other resources. I mean, how do you get through those moments? What kind of sent, I mean, I know you're saying you felt like your life depended on it, but what did that look like in real time? How did you get through that process? It was really fear-based, absolutely fear-based. And when I am talking to people now, I do not recommend this strategy. (laughs) (laughs) If I could go back and do it all over again, I would definitely do it differently. But the way I handled those early months was distraction, 100% distraction. Um, I exercised more. I tried to shake up my um, routine. Um, I did tell my mom and my husband what I was doing. So I had accountability and, um, I, and I really was, yeah, being led by fear of what would happen if I started drinking again, where that could take me. Today's episode is sponsored by Athletic Brewing Company, America's leading non-alcoholic craft brewer. Have you been thinking about cutting back on alcohol, but still aren't sure if near beers are for you? Check out Athletic Brewing, the most decorated non-alcoholic brewer in the world. Athletic produces a wide selection of great-tasting brews, including IPAs, Goldens, Darks, Lights, Sours, and more. Their non-alcoholic beers have won over 70 awards and are fit for all time, so you can drink them anytime and anywhere. Now you can enjoy great-tasting craft brews all night long and still be ready for whatever life throws at you tomorrow. Right now, new Athletic customers can receive 20% off their first order when they visit athleticbrewing.com and use the code CP20 at checkout by August 31st, 2023. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, you know, I have a somewhat similar experience, although our, our my consequences, consequences were a little differently different, and I um, you would have labeled me as an alcoholic, no question, because I did do all the drinking in the morning and that stuff. But it was because it just progressed to that point. I wasn't always at that point. So I was, you know, right. back where kind of you were at one at at various points in my life. My question is, <clears throat> I recall, my father was an alcoholic as well. And I used to watch and you know, without even consciously knowing what I was doing, I was creating judgments and opinions and and I was soaking this stuff in and I do want to be like that or it's okay to be like that, whatever was going on in this child brain of mine. Um, But at the same time, going along through life, through my teens and my 20s, I knew deep down that what I was doing was not good. And whether it was, you know, fitting some mold or some definition of alcoholic or not, I watched my father, therefore I knew it wasn't a good thing. And so mm-hmm. as normal as I could make it and as, 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 as a part of me or, or whatever, as I could make it, deep down inside of me, there was some level of shame in there. There was some level of, of guilt knowing that I was not, that I was potentially risking going down the same path. And I guess what I'm getting at is I, I suffered from tons of panic attacks, but it was as a result of that, that, that subconscious kind of shame that is, is, do you relate to that at all? Is that part of, was that part of your experience? I think I was so distanced from my own emotional needs. You know, I, I am also coming from probably 20 years of disordered eating too. Um, I, there was, you know, I grew up with shame. I grew up with um, that guilt. And so I didn't really know what was at the root of that. Um, For many years, I directed it at my weight and my body. Um, So when I transferred my um, addiction issues 
um, or my need to numb over to alcohol, I don't know if I directly realized or even indirectly, I don't know if I acknowledged that the root of that was um, that there was, I had a drinking problem or a drinking problem in the works as much as I was just a bad person. Um, I was not worthy. I was never good enough. You know, all those things that start when you're a child um, that I now look back and directly tie to my start with disorder eating and later alcohol use. But um, during my drinking days in my 20s and 30s, I thought that I could literally beat the system. Um, I thought that my dad was a different type of person than I was. And I grew up with a mom telling me there are alcoholics and there's normal drinkers. And she's like, I don't know which one you are, you know, genetically, you're going to be one of the two. And so I figured if look at me, I'm drinking normal. I'm drinking normal. I clearly didn't get that gene. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I can still drink problematically because I don't have the gene. Right. right? right. And it was such black and white thinking. And it's so um, uh, narrow minded. And now, you know, we, we talk about addiction so differently societally and it's so helpful. Um, but looking back, I, I, I have blinders on, I think that, um, this wasn't, um, addictive drink. I, I wasn't drinking problematically because look at all my friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at college drinking. I mean, who doesn't do this? You yeah. know, these are the things constantly going through my head. Well, and then, so let's jump into the mommy, mommy wine culture kind of stuff. Um, I always feel silly saying mommy, um, but mommy. <laughs> <laughs> mom wine culture. Um, sure. But obviously, you know, in your story, it, it progressed during that time. Um, yes. And and we can we can move apart away from, you know, your personal experience into sobriety. And let's jump into that culture in general, because I know that yeah. is something you 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 know, are, are researching and writing on and, and, and are very insightful on. So give us a little, you know, give our listeners a little bit of, you know, history into that. Uh, you know, wh where did mom, mom wine culture come from? Yeah. I mean, so to talk about what mommy wine culture is, you know, I define it as this social narrative that is either joking or implies that moms need alcohol to survive parenting. Um, so that's what we're talking about when we talk about mommy wine culture. And, you know, when I was doing my digging and history research, um, the the meme, you know, that really started the mommy wine culture of the early 2010s, which sounds so weird to say, is, um, you know, mommy needs wine or I wine because my kids wine. And this really this narrative really took off um, around 2010, uh, with, you know, because social media made it so accessible and so easy for it to spread and share and go viral. Um, so it became very popular, a very popular thing to say, a very popular thing, um, for us to joke about. And then, you know, it wasn't probably until maybe 2015, 2016, when you start seeing it at, target <laughs> in the in the team section yeah. but um it was this mommy needs wine uh and then i mean it has reached the proportions where you can go on etsy and buy little onesies that say you know i'm the reason my mom wines <laughs> it's this social narrative that really puts the blame of um why motherhood's so hard on our children and, you know, as a daughter of an alcoholic, obviously I can speak to how problematic that narrative is. I, I like to say if I can't, it was hard enough having a dad who is an alcoholic. I can't imagine him walking around with a shirt that says, it's she's fault. the reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, We already feel she's that way anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. So, um, that it, it's a very problematic message in and of itself. And maybe when the kids are infants, you know, they're not picking up on the message, but when they're six and seven, they're reading the mugs, they're reading the shirts 
And it's immediately, you know, going to start creating um, these uh, narratives in their own head, whether they, whether it's conscious or subconsciously. Um, so I, I, I try to uh, speak to that. And this is coming as someone who used to write these memes. Yeah. I used to write them. I used to share them. I was part of this problem in every sense. Yeah. So I want to say that too. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then the other thing, the other problem I really have with mommy wine culture is it distracts us from the larger message. And the larger message is moms are struggling. We're in a um, harder position than I think we ever anticipated where um, we, the mental load of motherhood is all consuming. The gender roles are still not equal in the household. And we are still working with very antiquated systems um, in the workplace. Um, you know, federally, we don't even have a um, a maternal um, maternal leave policy. And we're one of the only countries in the world that doesn't um, include that as part of um, their, their federal rules and regulations. So I feel like that speaks so much to in the United States, just how antiquated our systems are. Uh, in the workplace, you know, the eight to five uh, work uh, hours is so unhelpful and and challenging for for mothers, parents in general, but more often than not, mothers. And um, this is just how it is because it's the way it's always been and nothing's changing or nothing's changed at least until COVID uh, when things are starting to change. But even then you see a lot of people going back to some of the old ways now that we're a couple years in. Um, so when I say mommy wine culture distracts us, when people um, talk about the challenges of motherhood or that they're really struggling um, it's a lot easier to say, sounds like mommy needs wine or laugh it off. Like it's a joke, then lean into what can we do to make actual systematic changes, um, to help mothers who are struggling. Uh, it really stymies a potentially challenging, but crucial conversation we need to be having about mothers in the workplace and mothers at home. So uh, that's another problem I have with mommy wine culture. And then, the, of course, the last part is something we all know, which is um, alcohol is not the solution. Right. We should be pushing on especially new mothers who have a, at least 10% chance that they're going to struggle with postpartum depression, um, who are lacking in sleep, who um, are their entire life just got upended to suggest alcohol is dangerous and stupid and um, the opposite of what mommy probably needs. And it infuriates me that that is the message more often than not when a mother reaches out and says, you know, on social media or even in, in person, they're struggling that we, we make a joke and say, it sounds like you need some wine or let's go out for wine. I mean, that's, that is not, um, the direction we should be going. That's not the advice we should be offering. Um, these are real cries for help and um, we should be doing something um, su substantive about it. Hmm. I love that. I mean, if I hear you correctly, it's kind of putting some power into the hands of women too, to not take those moments and just provide a joke or sort of misery loves company, right? To really say to somebody, hold on a minute, I hear you saying something. This is a lot. What could I do to help? Is that is that right? Like we can kind of yeah. start shifting into a into a more intimate, connected place if we remove this joke that we've all sort of just come to accept. Right. I mean, I think if we actually leaned into it, I know it's uncomfortable. You know, we come from a generation where talking about emotions is is a big no-no. But if we can actually lean into it and see what we can actually do to be of help towards each other, it would make a huge difference. It will ultimately, perhaps for someone who is struggling, not have them reach towards a glass of wine, 
and receive actual support. I mean, I mean, there's, there's literal implications and there's figurative implications to all of this, of course. Um, but at the end of the day, it's doing us, <clears throat> it's, it's not the, the narrative isn't doing anybody any good except wine companies. They right. love it. <laughs> right. Well, and that's a perfect segue into why in the hell is this going on so much in the public eye? Why is there so much marketing? And, you know, I mean, my mind goes to like, you know, these people in the boardrooms, like twiddling their fingers going, ha ha ha, like we're going to attack, attack <laughs> the weak, you know, and, and is there, do you think there's some truth to that? I mean, not, not the weak peaks, but there, there is a lot of, obviously very much pressure on women, uh, clearly as mothers, do you think they sat there and said, man, they'd be perfect to push some unhealthy coping mechanisms on? Yeah. And, you know, the book uh, Drink by Anne Dowsett Johnson yeah. really digs into the research of this um, and looks at the marketing playbook of alcohol companies. And she says, you know, they did uh, market segmentation and they saw that women were underperforming uh, in the market uh, for um, alcohol purchasing. Um, and this was, you know, I think in the the nineties and two thousands. And so they honed in starting then they really honed in. And since then you, we, we see it everywhere. You know, it's, they call it pink washing where um, the, the marketing towards not just mothers, but women in general has skyrocketed. Um, and um, it's not, uh, it's not a coincidence, you know, that the, the explosion in addiction in women has, has grown in recent years. Like the, it's not surprising at all. You know, it's not all to advertising, but advertising and marketing plays a big part because it is so prominent. It is such a major, um, part of how they sell products. So I'm not sure again, but it sounds like to me the the empowering piece here is that the opportunity to move away from that really lies with women, right? Like to decide that's not what we need. We're going to advocate for each other, for ourselves, for a different way, for different tools. I realize this is big societal, political. There's a lot of layers here. Um, but what is your the reaction to people in your life? I imagine you've got a bit of a reputation now, right, a, on a scale outside of people you know intimately. But do you find a lot of people react differently now, knowing that you are somebody who advocates for that, for other resources, for intimate conversations? How does that work in your sort of community and the women that are around you? What do you mean for like friends and whatnot. Yeah. I think I'm just curious, uh, you know, if you, you're sort of, uh, or early on, it sounds like maybe we're one of the few people someone might know that wasn't going to say, have a glass of wine, have a martini, come over for a happy hour or whatever. You know, it, it sounds like you're offering other solutions. Um, you're an outcast. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully now <laughs> it's becoming a bit more of a, of a normal conversation, but do you find women to be receptive to those other opportunities? Do you, people seek you out? Um, to say sort of like, what could I do? How can I change this? Or, or does that sort of stay separate in your personal life? How does that work? It's a great question. Um, my personal life has obviously changed quite a bit since I quit drinking as it would naturally. You know, I, I always say that um, sobriety is the, the greatest friendship filter because you find out who your real friends are. Um, but you also are able to distinguish what you really want in a friend. Um, so in my own life, it, 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 people ask me, it does come up, you know, what, what can we be doing differently? I had a friend reach out to me after my dad died, um, which was about, it was a couple of years ago. It was after I quit drinking, but before COVID. And she said, you know, I wanted to get you a basket, you know, a condolence basket, but they all had wine in them. She's like, what, what do you do? What do I do? So like they, they come to me with questions. They're curious. Um, and I think when it comes to, you know, what I, I, I do feel like in my personal life and, um, externally, I do see a cultural shift. We are hearing more, about the problems of alcohol, not just for people who 
identify as alcoholics, um, that it's problematic for, for anybody. Um, and so I think that people are starting to take away that there are bigger issues at play here than, uh, personally, what's how you, uh, what, what type of genes you have in your body. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's great, but um, there's, there's still so much education we still need to do. <laughs> I'll tell you this. When I, um, I, when I was writing my, the book I have uh, that's coming out in the fall, um, my editor, she challenged every single thing I said negative about alcohol. Um, she didn't understand uh, like alcohol is addictive. Like she wanted, she wanted, um, references to back up every single thing I was saying. And I, I was so sure that this was just, everyone knew this by now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, how do I really <laughs> do I have to prove it? Just common sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In general science. Yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes I feel like I am so ingrained in this, uh, narrative that I'm sure you guys see this too like even my oh, yeah. feed um they are catered to um my sober lifestyle and whatnot so it it feels like we are moving the needle but sometimes i have to wonder how much of that is just um my google searches and my phone listening to my conversations and saying i know what to tell her <laughs> yeah how much of that um, is based on the algorithm of what you exactly. want to see in here in the world um, but I do like, uh, my followers and whatnot, they will, they will send me, um, if they see problematic messages in other people's reels or posts, they'll send them to me. Um, uh, and I, I don't often comment a lot of the times it, there's nothing to comment on. It's just somebody else's perspective, but, um, that kind of gives me more insight into, um, where other people are at and culturally what what is still considered popular and a um a exciting topic that goes viral um and i'm not seeing so much of it um in the mommy needs wine conversation and that gives me hope um externally outside of my own you know personal life so i i don't know if again the whole world around me is still obsessing over the narrative or, and I'm just so um, immune to it, or I'm just not seeing it. But um, I do have hope. I think that since books like Drink and Holly Whitaker's uh, Quit Like a Woman came out, it really shifted um, culturally how we speak about alcohol in a really good way. Yeah. Me too. And I straddle both. I think Mine is probably a little bit less selected. I do drink somewhat and have a lot of people in my life who drink. And I think I see a difference all across the board, to be honest, mm -hmm. even with people who historically have been drinking without really giving it a second thought. I see a lot of people tuning in and saying, just, you know, maybe, maybe abstinence or sobriety is not the path for me, but there's something calling me to just sort of like, look at this, re-examine it. Could it be better? Could it work differently for me? I see a lot of people doing that. So that's huge. Yeah. It's encouraging. I mean, yeah. the fact that dry January is has exploded awesome. in recent years. Yeah. I, I think that um, is, is additional proof that people are being more mindful about it. Yeah. And the, the NA market, right? I mean, there's so many yes. new products. I, I know I've, I've heard uh, you talk about that on various podcasts. I know we've, yeah. we've explored a lot of those products and the founders behind them and what drives them. And, uh, you know, a lot of those founders are not necessarily sober, but don't really drink or, you know, hardly drink. And so that's an interesting piece of the puzzle too, that whole group of people who want to change. Um, like you said, even though they maybe don't identify with any kind of label that would call them to be completely sober for uh, those obvious reasons. Right. I think being sober in today's day and age is so much easier than it even was for me five years ago, because there's so many more options. People are more mindful and aware of why somebody wouldn't drink. You don't feel this need to defend yourself. It's an empowering time to be sober. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and I've, been, I've you've sort of famously spoken to that idea that alcohol is one of the only drugs we have to defend not consuming. Do you feel like that <laughs> shifted a little bit now and, and that there isn't as much of a, a pressure on that? I hope so. Yeah. I think so. 
but I hope so. Um, again, you know, I, I kind of live in um, a bit of an echo chamber um, in my social media, but um, I see less pushback when I post um, about choosing sobriety or questioning the narrative than I used to even just a couple years ago. So I see it um, in um, in what I'm doing and my writing already. And that's just been in the past few years. That's amazing. I mean, the amount of people just I know in general who, you know, don't even consider themselves sober, just stop drinking because they, you know, for all the, all these reasons we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> and also there's, I heard someone recently throw up a, st- actually we spoke to a church group recently and the, uh, the, re- the reverend like had a bunch of stats that she wanted to give us to speak on, but we didn't. Um, but the, one of the stats was like, uh, somewhere around like teenage drinking and how it's just decreased tremendously, uh, statistically now. Decreased. Yeah. I mean, reporting, obviously that's, that's a factor as well, but I, I do think the younger generations are, are, this it's more normal to to look at alcohol the way that we're all kind of starting to and and it's that's exciting um i don't know there's been something i wanted to say during this entire conversation and i'm not sure it 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 lines right up with where this conversation is going but the one thing that i notice a lot is the difference between how females are looked at in their drinking and how men are looked at in their drinking. Now, I, I know that that is, that is somewhat commonsensical and, and, and I think it, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, saying anything that nobody already knows, but I just look at the kind of, and relate it to the mom wine culture. It's like, they, they go, Oh, there's a gap in the market and women aren't drinking as much. Let's market to them and let's push this big thing and make all the women drink. And now they're drinking a lot. Now let's shame them because they're drinking too much and they shouldn't be drinking as moms. And there's no winning. There's no winning for the female. (laughs) Right. And men can drink all day long. Men can drink. They can, I need a cocktail. You can go to a restaurant. You can go to a bar. You can see a man slurring his words and it doesn't catch my eye. I see a woman slurring their words and it does. Yes. I got no I question. <laughs> I'm just saying stuff. You're just <laughs> making a statement. <laughs> you know, it's such a, it's a, I see it both ways. Um, there is additional pressure on the mother because from a gender role, mothers statistically do more of the parenting uh, still, even in today's uh, day and age. Um, so there is that question, well, who is, you know, you're, you're at, you're at a play date, date drinking wine. Who is driving your children home? Who is watching your children? Personally, that was a huge reason I knew I had to quit. You know, I, I am the default parent. My, if something were to happen, I could one, never forgive myself, but two, I would be the blame. I would be to blame. It wouldn't matter that my husband was sleeping next to me that whole night. You know, if the house caught on fire and I was too drunk to get up and something happened that most of it would have fallen on me. Um, and, um, that's something that, you know, I think culturally over time, as we, as we do work towards more equality, Um, in household and parenting roles, that will shift. Uh, It'll stop being about, you know, daddy's babysitting tonight, you know, and more about um, equal parenting roles, equal parenting time and whatnot. But right now, right here, the majority of the time, women are taking that role as default parent. Uh, The mental load of motherhood, you know, is, you know, the all-consuming emotional labor, that women are more inclined to feel and take on with household responsibilities, with child rearing, um, with all the invisible work that goes into uh, keeping a household running, right? So right now, the majority of that falls on the mother. And I often say, you know, here's another reason why moms are drinking more than ever. I mean, look at the heavy weight that is falling on mothers, which, one is not unusual. Um, women have been doing this for decades, 
but the fact that we are now back in the workforce uh, more than ever, while still having the weight of those responsibilities is what's unique to these generations. Um, and without, you know, the without the assistance or support that we need to take that on, you know, I, I look at the rise in drinking and I say, no wonder. Um, but on the other side of this, this is more research that I did, you know, daddy beer culture, this is something else people comment on a lot. Like you can't go at moms for mommy wine culture and not talk about daddy beer culture. Like that's, that's not fair. You know, daddy beer culture is a thing and dads and men have their own pressures to drink. I mean, look up when you look at sporting events. Um, I imagine the pressure to go into a bar and drink with the other guys while you watch a sporting event must be hard. Um, I imagine abstaining from alcohol when every other man um, around you is drinking would be a challenge. Um, you would be told to man up that you, you know, you're, you're being a wuss or whatever. So men do have their <laughs> own <put>. challenges. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, like, I'm so glad you brought that wuss, up. I, that's <laughs> oh, what I get called. Like what I said. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm making it PC. Yes, yeah, yes, PC yes. Words. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I've heard you speak to Fair Play before. And yes. um, I think it's a great resource. I don't know if you've read or watched. There's a, uh, a film version now um, made by our friends at Hello Sunshine, which is an incredible resource mm. if you're not really familiar with um, with exactly what you're talking about. But they, the, what I love about that approach, too, is exactly what you're saying. It's not anti-man, right? It's anti what we've been doing. It's not really working mm. for anybody. It's not working for men or women. Um, so how can we not be divided on that and instead come together and say, let's figure out what will work for everybody moving forward? Um, right. In particular, in this case, for women, because it's really not working. But I don't know that we're saying it's men's fault either. Right. And, you know, men have been so underprepared for parenting, Um up until now for this very reason, you know, we expect the mother to take on the roles. So nobody's, nobody's helping the men out <laughs> to take on the fatherhood roles. And there was a, a report done, um, I think by Mass General Hospital um, a couple of years ago, um, asking what percentage of new fathers felt prepared to be a father. And it was a ghastly number because these men were going into parenthood, not really knowing what to expect, probably not getting, you know, when the doctor comes in to talk to me and my husband about our child, he looks at me, right? He's looking at mom. And um, that that's not really fair to my husband, the father of our children. And um, hopefully we can, you know, make more changes where the assumptions and expectations and um, the amount of time we are putting into um, helping equip new parents is going both ways. So not only fathers feel more prepared, but then they're more willing to step in and, and do their, their part. I like it. <laughs> I'm always so curious your thoughts on this because your daughter's a little bit older now, but Robbie... Right. Was it you were a full time parent for a big chunk of her? I was a stay at home dad, right? Yeah, so. yeah. And I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> None of us do, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. None of us know what we're doing, but we look to the mom like she should. Yeah. Did you feel as the stay at home dad? Did people overlook you or dismiss you, wanting to know where the mom is so we can talk to the boss? Oh, absolutely. Kind of are, are you off today? <laughs> <laughs> I get, I get that, asked that all the all time. time. Yeah. And even now when I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and don't work for someone, you off today? No, I'm not. I'm yeah. just getting coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm not off. It's just school pickup, right? Someone's got to right, it's school pickup. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, well, I know we're short on time, but I'm so curious to know outside of educating ourselves and these bigger conversations, what are the solutions that women and men, people, communities can be putting in place right now that can really support women, maybe, right, and parents mm -hmm. move through this, uh, hopefully into a space where alcohol is not the solution that we all either know of or joke about? Right. You know, I think it starts with education and awareness. 
you know, when we, when, for me personally, when I realized I had been numbing myself out to probably some of the pain points I was having in uh, early motherhood, um, and I sobered up, that's when I kind of started to get angry and really wanted to, um, figure out why this was the way it was and what we could do about it. And I think for more and more women in new sobriety, they feel the same way. Like I've, I've been numbing out to this problem for long enough. What can I actually do now? So I think that's the first step is kind of, uh, taking the, the blindfold off. And then, you know, I do think it, it comes down to speaking up and, um, speaking out about um, how workplace culture is so challenging and so hard, especially on new mothers. And then it comes down to voting and voting for um, policymakers who are, are going to make uh, better changes. Um, so we do see better maternal health care. So we do see um, a legislative changes that will empower mothers and women in the workforce. Um, that, I mean, that's where I see major change that can actually happen. I think as this culturally, as this narrative starts to evolve, which we talked about earlier, that it is happening. I'm hopeful that um, we will see um, policies um, change to, to adapt. Shout out to Lumo. I was just thinking the right? same thing. Uh, Celeste, just, or, and our listeners, look, Google Lumo, L-U-M-O. It's a friend of ours who was, who was on this show a while back, started a company that is very much advocating for women in the workforce and providing lots of services and, and changing the way things are done in there. It's really, really outstanding work. But that's it. That's what we need. Yeah. Uh, we need more... Um, more organizations uh, like that um, that are helping us kind of maybe at the grassroots level, but then also uh, getting us into the the polling places and and voting for change too. I'm very curious to know, outside of the t-shirts and the memes and all of that, you know, th this connection that happens between moms when there's a wine hour, when there's this, I don't know, this shared understanding that something is really overwhelming and there, there's this sort of like moment of connection over that. When you decided to stop drinking and you remove that, how do you um, find yourself or suggest for other people really truly having like that connection, that intimate relationship with other women? I mean, what are some alternatives to drinking that have been really um, productive in your life and your connection to other women and moms? Yeah. So when uh, in March 2020, you know, when schools got shut down, when a lot of mothers, mostly mothers, uh, realized they were going to now be homeschooling their children and fathers did too. But, you know, stats show the overwhelming amount was mothers. Um, we saw recovery resources dwindle, if not disappear completely. And uh, my friend, Emily Paulson, got a group of women together um, and we created, uh, she created Sober Mom Squad. And um, for me, that was the first time I had ever gone to a meeting, um, was those early days. Um, I think April 15th of 2020 was our very first meeting and we opened it to anybody who was sober or sober curious, who uh, was living or exploring an alcohol-free life. And that form a community, a community with other women who get where you're at, who understand the struggle. I mean, that that's a lifeline. There's nothing like that. And for me, as somebody who had never gone to a meeting before in my life, it, it was a game changer. Um, and that type of connection and that type of um, camaraderie uh, is so profound. And I would encourage it uh, for anyone who's listening, uh, wherever you are, to find a community um, that aligns with um, your your life or your lifestyle or just your, your interest in um, being sober. 
because it's hard to find that community, a sober community uh, locally with people who uh, you can connect to at a more intimate level. And like, as far as in my own personal life, I don't have a lot of mom friends who don't drink. I have a lot of mom friends, but the majority of them drink. In fact, there's only two or three who don't. Um, and to be able to have that dynamic where I can tell them I'm having a really hard day or that I'm feeling triggered, um, that's not something I think I would even bring up to my mom friends who drink because I just don't think they would understand. And I don't think we would be able to have a constructive conversation, but to be able to go there and be vulnerable um, in a conversation um, with somebody else who gets it um, is really important. And I think that's something that um, I would encourage anybody on their sober journey to strive to find. So that's still an active virtual um, platform that's available, Sober Moms. Yes. Want. And um, it's right now, I mean, it has turned into a full on three to five meetings a day, uh, active platform, its own app. Um, but we still have free meetings every Wednesday, 10 a.m. Pacific that I host. I'll be hosting it in 30 minutes. Nice. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, it's open to anyone who identifies as a mom and is living or exploring an alcohol-free life. And we get people from day one to year 20 of sobriety. So it's it's across the spectrum. It's women who are sober curious and who aren't even sure that this is the direction they wanna go. They just wanted to, they're just getting curious. Um, and um, from from all, all around the world, essentially. So um, that's um, a resource that, you know, came out of the pandemic and is still um, just such a valuable resource to so many, including myself. Very cool. Yes, thank you for sharing. All right, Celeste, what are the three biggest benefits that you have experienced received after stopping drinking? Um, in my own sobriety, I have been able to lean into my value and self-worth both as an individual and as a mom, I feel like I got my integrity back. Um, um, and more, more for myself than really anyone, uh, which is probably the most important part. Um, <laughs> and then on a, a lighter side, um, being able to remember what I did the night before yes. and who I texted and one. what I put on one. social media. <laughs> I still wake up each morning and breathe a sigh. Oh yeah, I do too. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to do my due diligence <laughs> and make sure I didn't completely screw up everything in my life the night prior. Yep. 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 Very cool. You want to do the power, the power question? Sure. Um, all right. Well, Celeste Yvonne, why do you care so much? I care so much because my kids are the most important thing in this world to me. And if I can leave this place in a little bit better situation than where I found it, hopefully they have a chance at thriving. Love it. I love that. Yeah. Celeste, you're a delight. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. This was wonderful. You two are just incredible. I could talk to you all day. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. Visit Patrick Balsley's practice, saunacounseling.com, Robbie Shaw's practice, eventiderecovery.com, or visit theblanchardinstitute.com. 